What is Jesus supposed to look like? This is one of the inevitable questions raised by Christians around portraits of Christ. How much ink and paint have been spilled around this very issue? Jesus is a loaded term, but perhaps the issue is not in the larger-than-life theologies, but in the dimensions of our anthropology. Put differently, what's it mean to say Jesus is supposed to look like anything? In the supposed to, there are histories, politics, desires, and emotions that turn the image into an anticipated experience, and the stakes couldn't be higher. Edward J. Bloom is the co-author of The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America. Along with Paul Harvey, Bloom helps us think through what goes into the difference and differences Jesus' imagery has made in the United States. When people approach Jesus, sometimes they're looking for a Jesus they can understand, a Jesus who's familiar, and so to quote-unquote make God, make Jesus look like themselves. But that's really only, a, that's a real kind of simplistic way of seeing hu humans. Because um, whenever humans try to understand their relationship um, to each other, to themselves, um, and then to angels and gods, there's always a part of it that's like me and unlike me. Bloom joins us today in a conversation recorded as part of a 2016 summer seminar entitled Bodies of Christ, Visualizing Jesus Then and Now, sponsored by the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship with funding by the Lilly Endowment. And that's coming up right now. From SowingTheSeed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, a podcast with future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you've joined us. So we're joined by Edward J. Bloom. He's the co-author of The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America. So welcome to the show. So glad to be here, Richard. So this work is about a saga, the long story of Christ and race in the United States of America. So how long has this intersection been a thing? How long has it been happening? Because it seems like for many that when you talk about Jesus and race, you're really getting a 20th century, oh look, now we can have a black Jesus. But the title seems to me that's a much larger story. Yeah, well, so Paul, my co-author, and I really wanted to give a kind of grand story of Jesus in America, and especially um, what we today would call racialized situations. So all the way back to Columbus and the first Spanish Iberian travelers and conquistadores bringing their notions of Jesus, their icons of Jesus to the New World, where they interacted with a whole bunch of Native Americans who had their own religious traditions, their own spiritual material icons, and even though at the time they wouldn't use the language of kind of modern race, um, it's today it looks like, you know, an ethnic interaction. It looks like interactions of difference and power. And so we wanted to look at, okay, how did Jesus function both as an idea and as a material object, you know, made into physical objects in those encounters? So we trace it all the way from 1500 to, I guess the book came out in 2012, we get into the Obama presidency, and um, so that's that's the saga of 500 years. So throughout this 500 years, is it fair to say that um, just as many Americans like to cite the Bible as saying, well, we're made in the image of God, 
um, that people also make God in their image? Is that sort of a way of summarizing that history, or is it? Or is there something else to it? There's definitely a truth to that. That um, when people approach Jesus throughout, sometimes they're looking for a Jesus they can understand, a Jesus who's familiar, and so to quote unquote make God, make Jesus look like themselves. But that's really only a, that's a real kind of simplistic way of seeing hu- humans. Because um, whenever humans try to understand their relationship um, to each other, to themselves, um, and then to angels and gods, there's always a part of it that's like me and unlike me. You know, there are things I like that that I find familiar in this Jesus figure. Oh, isn't it nice that he heals broken people? Right? I like that. But then there's troubling aspects. So, wait, the most powerful human in the world gets executed? He, in one sense, loses? He dies? And so that can be troubling. And so, so that's another wrinkle. And then the final wrinkle is just the place of technology and production. Like, in 1800, you can't, there's no internet, there's no um, paintbrush, there's no easy way, you can't, um, there's no smartphones. So a person can't draw a picture of Jesus in 1800, you know, snap a picture of it or a selfie with themselves with it and then send it to all their friends. You might only, you may never see an image of Jesus, just, just paintings might not even be around you. Or when we get into the 19th century, we get into the age of Oh, you know, mass production. Um, you might see Jesus images, but produced somewhere else, produced in New York City. And you see 10 of those, 20 of those, 100, 1,000 of them. And you just start to see God or Jesus that way. And so um, it's a real dynamic of both individual wants of a God or a Jesus who looks like them, but also technological realities of what's been visualized throughout one's life. And then finally, um, humans never want their gods to be purely in their own image, because that wouldn't, what would be the kind of ultimate point of that? Yeah, and as I was reading through these different ways that uh, peoples that have come or have been brought to America um, have engaged with the Jesus figure, it seems like part of what it means to be American, or at least to feel say complacent but certainly within the place the boundaries of America is to kind of mess around with Jesus like to think about how this Jesus thing impacts you how the different you know what are the differences between you and this Jesus and the other people who are trying to engage with Jesus um, that sort of messing with Jesus seems to be sort of a shibboleth for are you really in this America thing or not so much right Richard I think that's a great point um because everyone seems to have to wrestle with mm-hmm. Jesus in some way. And it's, it would be easy to see Jesus or Christianity as just kind of oppressive, okay, this is the way in which white Christian Europeans kind of press power onto other people, uh, press down on people, which surely happens. But the playfulness, the troubling of Jesus, um, think about you know uh, some of the spirituals. Everywhere I go, somebody's talking about Jesus. And that in the talk, we can have, yeah, we can have some trouble. We can ask some questions. So Jesus becomes a way not just to mess with Jesus, but then to mess with society. Yeah, and what were some of the images, engagements, interactions with Jesus that really stood out to you as you look at 500 years of history? 
the first and foremost is an artist named Henry Ossowet Tanner, who was basically around 1900, around the same time that W.E.B. Du Bois was writing The Souls of Black Folk, and they knew each other. Du Bois wrote about, used this image of the veil, this thing, this spiritual essence that separates people. And he would talk about being behind a veil, he would talk about life beyond the veil, sometimes that looked like heaven or after death. Well, Henry Ossawa Tanner, if you look at especially one of his most famous pieces of Jesus, it's just a kind of head of Christ, a painting, it looks like there's um, paint just kind of veiling the face. And that somehow, some way, we're looking through either we're behind a veil or he's behind a veil. And I love that because I thought it spoke to both um, a condition of American society where race is a, it veils, it separates people. We can't even, it seems to, to see one another as human, but also notions of the divine and the spiritual that as much as I want to see God or see Jesus, there's this separating force. So that to me was, wow, in material paint, he made such beautiful philosophical kind of broad human, um, represented broad human realities, but then also very particular of the moment ones. So that's the first one. How about you? What images have struck, stuck out to you? Well, I think the some of the images uh, that I really resonated with weren't so much pictures, uh, like physical pictures, though, like the Tanner, I really got into that as I was reading this and have since looked into more of Tanner's work. Um, but some of the depictions of famous images that to me were part of experiences. So uh, toward the end, you talk about um, this episode of the, the show Good Times, where um, the family depicted in Good Times is it's this family in probably the most famous TV depiction of the ghetto. Um, they talk about the ghetto so much on that show. It's a black family um, wrestling with hard times but trying to make a way out of no way. And they have a black Jesus at one point, and there's this whole debate about the black Jesus. And I'd forgotten about that episode. And then when I read about this depiction, I was like, oh my gosh, how could I have forgotten about this episode? Because it was one of those things that you watched and then you sort of wrestled with. Like, well, what, what is going on? And on television, in a 30-minute show, you got a um, really, in some ways, kind of highfalutin philosophical argument and cultural critique, as well as this really kind of personalized, how do we, what are we doing here? Like, what does it mean to do this stuff? You know, talking about Jesus, talking about us. What are the rules here? You know, are we are we going too far? And that that episode was troubling, um, as much as it was a lot of fun because it's intermixed with you know JJ of course doing his dynamite, you know all of this stuff. Um, so remembering that, remembering um, the Jeremiah Wright scandal around Barack Obama, and I had recently gone to a conference, the Samuel Proctor conference, which is this very uh, large. African-American black church leadership conference that takes place annually. And Jeremiah Wright had been awarded and was a, a major speaker at this conference. And this was before um, the election cycle. And I remember sort of hearing Jeremiah Wright, and I was like, wow, this guy's really compelling. This guy, uh, I mean, he's just bringing some, just he's just bringing the fire with this academic lens as well. And I think I was telling a lot of people back home about him, like, you've got to get on, on this. And then sure enough, a few months later, Jeremiah Wright's like in the center of all this controversy. 
And I'm like, oh, wow. And then you have to tease that out. And, um, you know, there was a whole debate about whether Barack Obama sort of took this black Jesus and this black liberation theology that helped him get to where he is, right, as a Christian, as an activist, as a community organizer in Chicago. And then the, the, the speech happened in, where was the speech that he gave? The, do you remember? Um, where he, had, he had, Barack Obama gives this speech, maybe in Cincinnati, but I'll, I'll, it'll probably come to me after the show. Um, but Obama gives this speech where he has to wrestle with who Jeremiah Wright is and sort of situate himself in context with Wright. And a lot of people said this is the best speech ever, and a lot of people said he just threw Jeremiah Wright and black liberation theology under the bus. So those moments really stand out to me, and this book really brought it back. And I think anyone who has probably been in America for you know a time where they can sort of remember, where they're like, okay, this is where I'm at, um, you know, consciously, will find moments within the book where they can sort of resonate, which is pretty cool. Real quick on the Good yeah. Times episode, so that's findable. Um, if there are any teachers out there, that's findable on YouTube. It's in the first season. I think it's the second episode, or it's yeah, it's, it's very early on. on, but it's on YouTube. And I've assigned it, you know, for students to um, watch the whole episode before they come to class. It's only 20, 30 minutes. And because the whole episode has all these incredible teaching moments. So at the very beginning, um, JJ is a painter, and he, he's encouraged to paint a new, make a new painting. Well, to do that, he, he explains, well, I have to go get on the bus, I gotta go downtown, where am I supposed to get money to buy some more art supplies, some more paint, and then I gotta come back. And so it gets the issue of time, resources, that art just doesn't come from nowhere, that it's contingent upon material, you know, um, money in a lot of ways. And then he has his paintings, and who's the inspiration for his piece of art? It's Ned the Wino. It's some dude who's drunk all the time in the in the ghetto who drinks too much and prophesies. He has like these like weird prophecies. Well, so you get that, and then when the family then debates whether they, they like this quote-unquote black Jesus or not, you get um, the nation of Islam is mentioned because uh, the, the young boy, I think it's David, shares about, he, he's reading Muhammad Speaks. He's got a copy of Muhammad Speaks there, and he reads about what Jesus looks like from Muhammad Speaks, and basically he's black and then the mother talks about no 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 this isn't her Jesus she didn't grow up with this Jesus she grew up with a white Jesus that's the one she prayed to that's the one who's there at baptism and then the very end it wrinkles into money and luck and it almost looks almost prosperity gospel-ish at the end because basically the family oh I don't want to ruin it for you but they come into some money and then they're like that's the dynamite moment (laughs) is that somehow black Jesus has maybe blessed them with some money but uh, for teaching it's one of those, like, students might at first be like, oh, this is an old-school TV show, but then I've found students really get into it because it's part of a medium they understand, too, you know, a sitcom. Yeah, and the, the veil imagery from Du Bois is really powerful here, right? Because I think it's not just for Du Bois about, okay, there's heaven on the other side, but it's also this these sort of social barriers, right? It's about... Um, right. That, that which must be transcended or, you know, Bingo. keeps you from <laughs> getting to the other side. And I think the Good Times episode is a really good example of that, right? Whether it's time or money or space, tradition um, and possibilities, you know, that they all can represent all of that. And um, 
of course, with artwork, you know, you talk about unveilings, right, at a gallery, you know, there's, now we get to see this wonderful thing that will take us to an experience we wouldn't have had before, and there's anticipation. Um, But there can also be quite horrible things on the other side of it as well, and um, this book certainly takes you to some moments that are not proud moments in American history, whether it's civil rights movement and the issues that led to a need for such a movement or um, settler colonialism or um, there's all sorts of uh, you can pick (laughs) from a wide range unfortunately Um, how do you deal with that violence and the juxtaposition to a Christ figure right yeah I definitely for this book and I'd written a previous book on W.E.B. Du Bois there were definitely lots of crying uh, moments for my own life, just partly being I, um, white middle class guy growing up. I was my life was really sanitized, and to come to an American history of such brutality, such violence, um, it was really uh, um, jarring for me. Especially as I as I embraced the humanity of uh, humanities of people who, just in my growing up, you know, I didn't. I didn't know the name of um, the janitor at our church who was African-American. I knew all the white people's names, you know, so that was just my notion of humanity. It was largely white-based, um, not... Um, and so, for instance, a good example is um, schools for Native Americans often would have a painting of Jesus on the wall, long hair, you know, the traditional, we would know of Jesus' is long hair. And, and they'd be instructed, the students would be instructed, okay, we want to make you to be more like Jesus. And as they're doing, saying this, we want you to be more like the teachers, we want you to be more like Jesus, these students, they were cutting the hair short of these Native American young men often. And, you know, hair in many indigenous cultures was part of was part of being a man, was part of being part of the community. So to physically cut off the hair while telling the student to look at a long-haired man and be like him. And that caused such a rupture in the psyches. A lot of Native American men have written about this. Ruptures in their psyches and, you know, and just, I'm supposed to follow this person, but now you're taking from, you're already taking me away from my home and um, and how to have someone else forcibly cut my hair. And then, so that's one element. Or to think about um, lynching. And how do, you know, how every three days are white communities in the South, not just for one year, not just for two years, but for decades, you know, forcibly as a mob executing a human being. And um, obviously there's a level of demonization that has to go on with that, but the courage it took for artists um, during the 1920s and after to to, to depict those lynch victims as... Christ figures or Christ-like figures or to put Jesus in the image of just like like hey no no Jesus is not on your side clan members Jesus is not with you uh, white violators but um, no Jesus Jesus is here with this um, typically African American man um, but it also put white supremacists as um, the the Christ killers the crucifiers you know and and for me um, how Jesus was used on both sides of that heinous um, debate. I just, I understand why um, Langston Hughes would eventually write, you guys, he has a short story on the road, um, titled On the Road, where there's a, a statue of Jesus and ultimately gets pulled down um, 
African-American man basically helps pull him down and the, the Jesus figure says, thank you so much. I've been nailed to that cross for 2,000 years and I just want off it. And, uh, you know, just to see, like, I, could, I imagine, you know, this God figure being used in this name, right, of, of to kill children of God. Um, yeah, it's disturbing and sad. And how do you, how did you get to the the point of constructing this saga? So you, you look at archival sources, you look at television and film, you look at, uh, of course, other scholarly literature. How do you go about constructing a sort of 500-year history that gives someone a kind of exhibition to the place, role, and image of Jesus in American life? Right. Great, yeah. I, uh, well, first thing is you get an incredible co-author who's done incredible research for his own. So Paul Harvey is just an amazing scholar of uh, race and religion throughout American history. So Paul had been working as a professional scholar for, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I'd been working for 10, 12 years when we linked up for this book. And um, so part of it was we just knew we could Jesus was too big. Jesus was too big to go it alone. Race, too big to go it alone. And uh, that was a joy to write together. I think also, so we'd been doing all this research, we'd been in archives for years and years and years. We'd written other books on race and religion. And then the internet existed. So things where we had blank spots, we could find things. Or I was emailing archivists. I was emailing people at the Smithsonian and different museums. And, and they would respond. You know, that didn't have the beginning of my career. I would have had to write them a letter and I probably would not have gotten a response. Um, so then bringing it together, I will say I wish we'd written maybe a little bit at the beginning more about the humility of writing such a story. Because, And by humility, I mean, A, there's a million things we don't know. And B, a million things we had to leave out or not discuss. So we had a big, huge, long section about the beard of Jesus as a racial signifier, as what type of beard Jesus had was discussed by quote-unquote scientists in the 19th century. And if he had, oh, the fact that he had a straight you know, his hair was straight on his beard, that meant he was Jewish but not African. And that was like an important, you know, quote, or not quote-unquote Negro to them and their defining. All that had to go because just we didn't want to publish, you know, an 800-page book that um, did a good job, you know, holding a door back. Um, But so that was it. But I think the humility of there's also a lot not here. There are a lot of sagas of Jesus and of race in American history that are still to be written, still to be explored. Um, there have been some really neat things online. There's a, a three-part series on um, the color of Christ and, and um, Asian Americans. And there's some artwork from the um, internment camps from World War II that one of the scholars writes about there. And it's just beautiful artwork, and I'd never heard of it. And so I think there's a lot to be investigated. Yeah, and I think the the question about beards is certainly coming back in light of Islamophobia in the United States. And um, I was part of a congregation in Claremont, California, a Methodist congregation um, across the street from Claremont Graduate University and next to the School of Theology there, where every Christmas there's a nativity scene that um, sort of a resident artist and member of the church uses to speak back to sort of instances in the news and culture and so certainly there have been themes about Islamophobia and border crossings and these and the like and of course the, the, the question of a bearded Jesus or a Jesus with facial hair who looks like the demons of contemporary society um, 
you know, is depicted. And I think the beard question, right, I think is one that is, uh, is coming to the fore for a lot of people. I, I remember going to, um, this had to be probably 2007 or so, going to Israel-Palestine for an archaeology dig. And um, I was going to go to Nazareth. I, you know, I had to tell at customs to an Israeli um, sort of security guard where I was going to. And I was saying, I'm going to Nazareth. He's like, you're going there. Like, why would you go there? Um, and at the time, I had a shaved head, and I was really dark. And, and so it was sort of like, well, what, what business do you have here? There's this whole kind of interrogation. And I was like, wow, it's really interesting that I'm being questioned here for going to, in my mind as a Christian, um, doing sort of biblical studies work, right? Going to the, the homeland of Jesus, and yet I'm also being sussed out as to whether I'm a terrorist or not, right? Um, and this is certainly a question that so many on this side of the Atlantic uh, are wrestling with as well. Um, yeah, Emily Rabito has a beautiful, a beautifully disturbing chapter on something like that in her book, um, Searching for Zion, where she talks about her first time flying to... Israel, Palestine, um, and basically, I don't know if it's TSA or somebody is like, you know, searching her, you know, trying basically, yeah, sussing her out. And, and I remember reading that just how jarring that was. And to be that physical investigation violation, it makes me think of like, what, I, what, you know, watching, watching Passion of the Christ, watching Jesus get beaten up, investigate his body, checked out. It's like, that's not something that just happens then. That is something that happens now, all over the place. Yeah. And not just among, oh, is the person supposedly, quote unquote, an illegal immigrant or maybe terrorist, but just, just in day in, day out, what does it mean to be frisked yeah. you know, by the police when you're just hanging out in Chicago? You know, that, that, that uh, checking of the body, looking for the, and I, uh, you know, as the body as symbolizer of danger or of good. I've never been frisked. You know, I'm 38 years old white male I've been all over the world it's never happened to me I've never been seen as a quote unquote threat yeah yeah and I drove from on the, on the way home uh, I left Jerusalem to on a t in a taxi to go to Tel Aviv uh, in the middle of the night because I was taking a red eye out and um, we got pulled over uh, on the I guess the highway or whatever um, and I had a Palestinian driver and we got pulled over and we were out sort of on the side of the street for easily 45 minutes, like, you know, as the car's being searched and all this stuff. And um, I remember thinking, like, oh, wow, like, you know, he and I were looking at each other. There's this sort of, uh, you know, knowing kind of like, yeah, this is how it is, right? This is just where we're at. And um, it's like, you know, you, could, you think about this with stop and frisk. You think about this with, you know, traveling papers in the 19th century. I mean, not to equate what I had with slavery for sure, but um, to recognize the history of um, this sort of what does it mean to interrogate bodies, and there's a lot of there's a lot to be gained from asking those critical questions about what we do with bodies. That um, in your work, I mean, you you really get us to slow down and think about what's it mean to talk about identifying Jesus with a body of this kind, one that looks like this, one that's depicted this way. Um, and as much as this is a book about race, it also touches on gender as well. And I, and I wonder how, uh, how you sort of see gender coming into play or sexuality. Because mm -hmm. um, you can't get around that when you talk about bodies. Oh, absolutely. Um, and this is, yeah, we'll, we'll circle back to, um, well, one way I teach the book 
especially among, if it's, it's a, either a Christian college or a largely Christian audience, is I'll get them to start either talking about their first either visualizations of Jesus, how they've seen Jesus, or kind of listing what are some of the things Jesus went through, you know, physically, and then have you gone through any of these things, or are there people in the world today you know have gone through these things? So kind of at the experiential level, um, and I know James Cone's book on the cross and the lynching tree, in one sense is theologically trying to connect to, you know, the experience of living through, of lynching and living through lynching with the crucifixion. So to your question about gender and sexuality, absolutely. This, um, so it's one thing people get into the like, well, Jesus was Mid- Middle Eastern, Jesus was a Jew, and then there's some, like, Jesus was a man. There's actually, a, did you see that movie Talladega Nights? Mm-hmm. That silly Will Ferrell movie, at one point they're debating what Jesus looked like, and the old grandpa's like, he was a man, he had a beard. It's like, wait, okay, so he was a man. So what is that, obviously, the, what it means to be a man changes in culture. You know, I grew up in a household, my dad's the most wonderful, I love my dad, to pieces. He's very emotional. But he would always say, women are more emotional. Women are emotional. Men are rational. That was like a thing he said all the time. And I know that was maybe his uh, hope. And like, okay, that's a notion of what men are like. So, but throughout American history, we get this, okay, so what is Jesus racially? That's one question. Then if he is a man, what, what does that even mean? And so it's like, well, here's a man who never married. Here's a man who didn't own property. Here's a man who willingly gave up his life, right? Didn't kill other people. Like, so he, in one sense, he acted very unmanly throughout a lot of cultures. Like, he, um, and so, and in a lot of imagery, um, his long hair, he's often, like, lots of people look at him and with the, if the beard wasn't there and be like, that kind of looks to me like a woman. And some of the debates, actually, Warner Solomon's Head of Christ, the most most reproduced image of Jesus, the real debate was not over what, how white he should be. It was how long his hair should be. Originally, his hair was so long that his art editors were just like, oh, you got to shorten this up because he looks like a woman. And it's been criticized as a quote-unquote womanly Christ. There's been fears of one pastor in Chicago. If you, if you have the chance to show it, you can put it up in your classroom. A pastor in Chicago responded to it, and excuse my excuse the language here, but he was like, "That's just going to attract all the." And then he well, used some word for um, gay men in there, and basically he didn't want those people, quote unquote, at his church. And so um, Jesus, yeah, plays a role in not only gender dynamics of of uh, what the divine is like, how emotional I can be, what type of you know, is it okay to be a businessman to make money, um, but also into you know, who can and should have sex with whom, um, can this Jesus image, uh, you know, a very scantily clad Jesus image. Um, there's some, some um, uh, gay men who've written in autobiographies about talking about, um, you know, sexually relating to that Jesus and um, having lustful relationships, quote unquote, with that Jesus. And so, yeah, it gets... It's, it's one of those, just like what you said earlier, Richard, is kind of as much as a white Jesus might try to stabilize whiteness and white superiority, it also destabilizes it because people can play around with it. Same thing, Jesus being a man can then be played with. What does it even mean to be a man? What does it mean to be manly? Yeah, I, um, as, as I read this book, um, sort of at, at this particular moment, summer 2016, um, can't help but think about uh, Prince, 
uh, artist who died, Prince, musician, and um, Anthea Butler wrote, wrote this wonderful piece about sort of her experience um, with being a fan of Prince and talking about, you know, were you allowed, you know, how she wasn't allowed to have sort of a poster of Prince in her room. Um, and there's, there's this sort of a, a comedic comment in place of, you know, you're not allowed to have these posters of these men, um, but you can have a poster of a naked Jesus, you know, on your, your room, and that's completely fine. Um, I've seen this in a, in a number of shows, and um, sort of it gets alluded to in a number of different ways. And it's like, yeah, like, part of the power of the Jesus figure is that he's able to transcend these boundaries, transcend the veil in certain ways, and that makes you wonder, well, what happens when you mess with that veil? Um, weird things can happen and as much as that veil is protected or negotiated by those who get to control the image of Jesus you're also seeing similar moves to control people who don't get identified with Jesus right so don't get too close you can't do this you can't do that um, act this way look this way speak this way um, so the the boundary making seems to be a big part of this saga as well we, we want to frame Jesus and we want to frame the people who are looking at Jesus. Yeah. And frame is a really good word for just, you know, the visual arts there. And, um, you know, it's funny. I, one of the first people who um, responded to the book, we used to have a website. People could share their Jesus stories on it. We had several hundred people written, like, what are your memories of interacting with material Jesus images? One of the first ones was from an older Catholic dude. And it was really, I don't think he was Catholic anymore, but he grew up Catholic and how he won this, like, Jesus in his, you know, his uh, confirmation class or something like that. And he brought it home and he had it in his room. And then when the lights went out, it started to glow. And it creeped him out and he was just like, whoa, this, there's this, you know, glow-in-the-dark Jesus. And later he found out, not at the time, but the intent of it was as an anti-masturbation icon. That basically was like, hey, even though the lights go out, don't forget, Jesus is still your Lord, so don't, you know, and so just even the, the, the boundary making, well, okay, well, when we can't be around, we're trying to press into you, like, oh, don't do that, um, versus like what you described about having these very sensual, um, not just Jesus, but like Adam and Eve, like I remember images of Eve and as a kid, or, or watching the Ten Commandments, the 19, you know, the 50s film, just being like, as a young person, like, very, you know, titillated. It was very sexual. And, oh, but I can't talk about that. I'm not going to go right. to Sunday school. And, and even the fact, like, we call her, in many places, the Virgin Mary. So there's a reference to a sexualized referent there. And I remember that was one of the first questions I had in Sunday school. It was like third grade. And I'm like, what's a virgin? And it was just silence. Yeah, that's right. You know? And like, yeah, they don't know what to do with it. But um, all those meaning making and then when when the silences happen or when the uh-oh tension yeah, yeah. that's the fun thing as scholars or as students we get to like look in we get to actually investigate those fun tensions that at the time nobody told us why they couldn't say anything right and and one of the difficult things uh, I think about writing a or recording a saga is that you have to put sort of these bookends on it right you, you, you get to start off but you also have to sort of place an ending, but I wonder as readers take up the, the work that you and Paul Harvey have done, um, and time has you know since gone on, what would what would have been the next chapter? You know, if you if you get to turn in a draft of this in 2017, what do you think you would have added to to this given current events? Um, that's a great question. Where would you, what would you add? I have two ideas, but what do you think? 
think I would certainly add the current presidential election um, and seeing what is happening around um, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders. You get you get this conversation about gender and politics, right? And socialism, right? We we have this history in America of Jesus versus socialism. Um, I think that has come to the fore to some extent. Um, a woman as a leader, right? And what does that do to the <coughs> Protestant psyche? And then Donald Trump, who, you know, as we speak, is making connections with evangelical leaders to try and figure out, okay, how does he put forward his agenda and campaign, despite the fact that uh, much of what he has stood for, or a lot of the ways that he's been perceived, has been against um, an image that a lot of Christians have held as Christ-like. Um, so that's probably something I would touch on off the top of my head. I think the two for me, and that, that would be a great, I think I think that would be terrific. Um, one is the role of the courts and the law. So if you were just to Google today, you could find that there's like debates over, you know, can a school in Kansas have a Warner Solomon head of Christ that they've had there for 40 years um, in the school? Well, those cases are going not just to local and, you know, county courts, but to state and perhaps even to Supreme Court issues. So so I think getting the courts in there, that the court as adjudicator um, would be one, because that's just happening locally and nationally. And then the second would be the real... Paul and I did a... We tried to make this a world history story, but it, it's mostly American, United States-centric. And I think blowing, pushing out to, you know... Um, the, the world Christianity's world religion, you know, there are big statues going up throughout to various places in Africa of, of Jesus, like, like basically the largest statue in a country, you know, will be a kind of Jesus image. So I think surveying the kind of place of Jesus as a material artifact in this, in this, the world that's so connected through the digital age. So those would be the two main ones um, I'd probably try to move out toward. Well, Edward J. Bloom, thank you very much for spending some time with us and speaking with us about your wonderful book, and we look forward to more. Yeah, thanks so much. Please feel free to find my email and contact me if you have, if folks want to, if you want to talk about the book or have questions or thoughts or want teaching materials, I'm happy to send them your way. All right, and we'll put that on our website at sowingtheseed.org. That was our guest, Dr. Edward J. Bloom. He's professor of history at San Diego State University. Along with Paul Harvey, he co-authored The Color of Christ, The Son of God, and The Saga of Race in America, published by UNC Press in 2012. I'm your host, Richard Newton. On behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Ponsuwan, thanks for being here. Until next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the magazine SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. Like us on Facebook at Sowing the Seed. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. Thanks for listening.